KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. It's time for Midday Edition on KPBS. Today we are talking about California's final reparations report. I'm Jade Hindman. Here's to conversations that keep you informed, inspired, and make you think. California's now Secretary of State, Dr. Shirley Weber, led the charge to get a state task force to study reparations in California. And I thought to myself, if not California, then who? Now that the task force has completed its report, we'll explore what's in it and what the experience was like for members of the task force to hear from Californians still living under the harmful legacy of chattel slavery. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Welcome in, San Diego. It's Jade Hindman. On today's show, we are exploring the final report from the California Reparations Task Force. What's in it and what are the recommendations for redress? This is Midday Edition, connecting our communities through conversation. On June 29th, the California Reparations Task Force, after more than two years of effort, submitted their final report to state legislators. The 1,100-page report proposes hundreds of recommendations for reparations for Black Californians to address the legacy of slavery and systemic racism. Here's what one of the public commentators, Marion Johnson, had to say at the June 29th meeting. Today, This is a grandstand for us. We thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. But let's continue on to get repaired, restored, and repaid for the pain that was inflicted upon our community. I'm joined now by California Secretary of State, Dr. Shirley Weber, who authored the bill to create the Reparations Task Force, which was formed in 2020. Dr. Weber, welcome back to Midday Edition. Well, thank you for the invitation and having me here. I appreciate it. So glad to have you. Uh, You are the driving force behind the creation of California's Reparations Task Force. Why was uh, it so important for you to create this legislation? And why do you think you were successful in having it materialize? Well, you know, I think it was important for for me to do this because obviously the federal government, the, the whole Congress has been trying to get some movement on reparations for what 40 years or more. And so it's been a journey and we've just finished doing a, uh, a resolution out in our, in the assembly saying we support it, we support it. And, um, and so at that point I said, when it, when it failed again in, in Washington, I said, you know, California can do this. We had just finished doing some, I had actually just finished doing some very difficult legislation uh, that, uh, that dealt with police and use of force and a host of other things. And so I thought, well, you know, if anybody in the assembly is going to try it, it'll probably be me. And if anybody could probably get through, 
I think it might be me as well because of the fact that I have uh, I've had some good relationships with members in, in, in the House and in the Senate. And uh, and it's really was forming a task force. Um, and reparations is something that uh, this nation is known for doing. It's not not asking for any, anything out of the extraordinary. Uh, and we had a governor who would believe would work with us and complement uh, the the bill in terms of him supporting it. So we were in the midst of doing a lot of unique things in, in, in the legislature and leading in a lot of areas. And I thought to myself, if not California, then who? And and that has proven to be true because it didn't take us a couple of years to get the resolute uh, get the bill passed. It took actually less than a full session, uh, less than a year to get the bill written and get it passed. Uh, get the support from the Black Caucus as one of their priorities, and so. I just thought it was time. You know, we had wasted a lot of time and the complications in Washington continue to grow and we could not just depend on them to provide the leadership. And California is known for leadership. Mm. Do you feel like uh, you've created a blueprint here that uh, Washington could perhaps use? Yeah, I think we've created a blueprint that many states can use. One of the things that I've found somewhat refreshing and and, and uh, in this whole process is that a number of cities decided that they were going to try to do some reparations in their city because of the conditions and, and the status of African-Americans in their local cities. So L.A. now has a task force and the Bay Area has a task force. And then uh, then small cities across the nation decided, you know, we can do something. Uh, even in San Diego, which is where my home is, uh, our foundation, uh, the San Diego Foundation, decided that, that they wanted to see what they could do about home ownership because that was one of the issues raised. And they felt, well, we can make a difference. And so They've begun looking at home ownership and ways in which they can help African-Americans and improve their data with regards to the ownership of homes. So I think it has opened up an opportunity for a lot of individuals across the, the, the nation. Uh, there have been organized groups before, but never organized at this level from the legislature and from the large state. And so now we're having more and more individuals asking us about what to do. New York is looking at a, a, uh, a task force as well. And so other states are saying, you know, we don't have to sit and wait for, for Washington. We can actually do this ourselves in our cities, uh, in our nonprofit organizations. And so across the nation, people are looking carefully at it and learning a lot about reparations. So what's it been like for you to see the task force take shape uh, and tackle this work and finalize this report? Well, you know, it, it, like anything, it has its ups and downs. I, I intentionally didn't want to be on the task force because um, I felt we needed to hear the voices of the community much more than the continuing voices of legislators. Uh, and so it's been good to see the real diverse group of individuals in terms of their background, their age, their experience, uh, and, and, and watch them work as a team to arrive at a product that, that I think they're very pleased with. I was pleased that our, our Attorney General, Rob Bonta, uh, which the bill was put into his uh, operation and did an excellent job in put in, pulling together additional staff and persons. Uh, the governor funded the, the, the uh, task force uh, with resources so they could travel to meetings and they could bring in experts. And, and, and I've just been impressed as I've, every turn as I've looked at the material, the, the hearings, the things that have taken place. Uh, everybody has their issues and concerns, and sometimes it's not a unanimous decision. But it's a good decision because they are moving forward with uh, with making some recommendations. Right. That in mind, the final 1100 page report has <laughs> many recommendations in its pages. Which do you feel are most important? You know, I think uh, it's it's hard to say exactly what's the most important, because depending on who you are and where you are, uh, um, reparations would impact your life. Uh, if you're a young person looking at it, then you're going to you're going to say this is great because 
It may help me with my entrance to the university and and putting my path forward. Uh, I think to those who have been struggling for so long, home ownership is a big issue for them. Uh, and uh, and so you you look at it and you, and you realize depending on where you are. Even I, as I was talking with someone when they were asking about cash cash out things, I said, you know, depending on where you are in your life, I said there have been a lot of African Americans in the state who came to California, and they're in their seventies and eighties, mostly in their eighties now, eighties and some nineties, who've lived in some very difficult circumstances where their plumbing is bad, uh, they don't have the resources to remodel their home, uh, and and so I see them live and work with these really difficult conditions that just continue to disintegrate because they don't have the resources. They can't get the loans. They weren't advantaged when they were young to be able to have the kinds of jobs and opportunities that others. And I said, in those cases, you know, cash might be important because they could or the opportunity to renovate their homes and to give them at least some relief uh, from the racism they faced all of their lives in California and the United States by at least having a decent place to live. So Everyone's going to approach it differently, and I'm, I'm hoping that we'll first uh, spend some time uh, figuring out what things that we recommend that we already do. And I think when we look at the educational piece, the, the legislature just did $300 million annually for the improvement of achievement for African-American students. And so, and, and, and so it'll be important to make sure that we factor in all the resources that currently exist uh, that address this issue and make sure it addresses not just the broad issue, of poverty, but really the issue of race and African-Americans in California. So I'm looking forward to us initially pulling out, and some have already begun to do that, where we are in terms of resources and, and those resources as they impact African-American lives. Uh, and then we need to address some of the bold issues of economics and, and redistribution of resources, whether it's a housing shortage, whether it's jobs. We see the nation has pretty much turned its back on anything that talks about affirmative action. And that's why this reparations is a harm-based issue, not a race-based issue. So we will uh, have to basically deal with that and begin slowly but surely to to basically rebuild uh, the role of African-Americans in California and, and the resources that they deserve. Uh, I anticipate this will take, a, a, there'll be things done in the next year, uh, but we anticipate that there will be, continue to be things that may take a little bit longer to recreate the kind of equity and parity that needs to happen. And you know, Governor Newsom, he was not in attendance at the final meeting of the task force. Do you know where he stands when it comes to the recommendations made by the task force? Well, I haven't actually talked with him about all of the recommendations. He and I have had some conversation about a lot of things that we're already doing. And I think his staff is, is working on that to make sure that there's some sense of, of where, what, where we are with the resources that have happened in the last few years and, and making sure that that's there. Um, the task force task was the governor signed the bill, but it really was a bill of the legislature and, and, and up to the legislature to actually implement the bill. And that's why the uh, California Legislative Black Caucus uh, took leadership with regards to the bill being present, receiving the reports, and are planning right now what they're going to do in terms of how they're going to address each one of the issues and which issues we will address first. So wanting to prioritize things so that uh, we realize what we have to work with and what things need to be done right away, which things timely, and then what t- things may take a, a while. Uh, it's it's like dealing with the issue, issue of education that's in the, in the, in the uh, in, in in the report. Uh, it's it's not going to happen in a year because we've gotten too far down in terms of student achievement. But some of it will happen, and it may happen at the other up, upper level with, with regards to high school students and college admissions. But there are a lot of things that we can do almost immediately in California to to basically begin to to create the sense of fairness and equity that's so essential. 
You're listening to Midday Edition on KPBS. We're speaking with California Secretary of State Shirley Weber about the California Reparations Task Force's final report. Dr. Weber, an apology is among the task force's recommendations. What's the significance of that? And what would you like to see in a formal apology from the state? Well, I think the document has a lot of information in it about California's role in, in slavery and, and, its and its repressive behavior. Um, I think, as, as most of the apologies have been, they've been somewhat um, uh, small in terms of the words that are actually being stated, but clearly an apology that, that recognizes that there have been wrongs done, that there is some, some responsibility for it, uh, and that, that the responsibility for it lies with those who are in the California, who live in California, and that we don't shuffle it off to the ancestors and the this and the that, where people say, well, I'm, I, I wasn't here when these things happened. Yeah, but we all somehow or another enjoy the sunshine and, and, and the benefits of what took place. So an apology that, uh, that, that people have given to the Native Americans and some others that are really a, a blueprint for saying basically understanding, one, that, you, that a harm was created, Two, that you're responsible for that harm. And three, that you never plan to have it happen again, that you're going to put things in place to make sure that you don't go down that same road again. So those are the things that people look for in apology uh, and a commitment from those who are making the apology that their behavior and the behavior of those that they work with uh, up and down the state obviously will, will will be transformed into something that will be much more beneficial for Africa. During this process of researching and analyzing the harms of chattel slavery, there was much conversation about eligibility for reparations. Can you talk about that and where that stands? Well, surely that, that was one of the main concerns. And I understand in, in, in many of the other groups, in the uh, Japanese groups, everyone has the issue of uh, uh, who is eligible to receive uh, any kind of reparations. If it's harm-based, then you have to look at who did, who's basically it was affected by the harm and where the harm was done. And, and clearly there are those who are, not, who are not born in the United States, who are you know, maybe recent arrivals of 30 or 40 years, are individuals who have suffered as a result of the impact of that. But there's so much more to it in terms of eligibility that, that exists there. You see, when you, um, um, when you have ancestors who were enslaved in this country uh, for as long as our ancestors were, their knowledge of self, their knowledge of their history, their background, their past, uh, I was talking with someone the other day about it, and I said, you know, it's 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 really when you began to really realize what took place um, during slavery, all of our souls were taken away. In many ways, we have been spending our time trying to rebuild our identity, rebuild where we came from, to really understand our culture. Those things were taken away. When I talked to my friends, or even my son-in-law, who was uh, uh, who was from Kenya, he he can trace his people all the way back. He knows his tradition. He knows everyone that for generations of who his relatives were and, and the resources that they had and how and how they survived. We don't have that information. Uh, we don't, many of us don't know much more than our grandparents or great-grandparents, depending on our age, uh, of where they came from and who they were and, and, and what kind of uh, skills and knowledge that they had and, and what we can build on to make ourselves uh, uh, happy and proud that, that we were individuals that, uh, that survived this, but also the, where we came from and the strength of that. So, you know, the taking away of our names, our, many of us are trying to trace our ancestors back to a village that we can think we can kind of get a chance to see who the people are. All of us have tried that and, and we get so far, but it's really interesting that it, it doesn't go far enough because obviously they took not only our, our last name and gave us another name. And then you have to find out what plantation you were on 
and it goes on and on and on. So at some point you realize it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a brick wall and that you're not going to get very far. You'll get to some relatives, but not enough. So when we start talking about harm done, that, that is the deepest harm because one, it takes away all of your identity, but then two, it creates a mental state. I mean, I tell people, my grandfather was afraid his whole life and that had to have some impact upon uh, his children and what they did in life. A person comes in to the United States in the last 30, 40 years who's African-American may have some difficulty getting jobs and applications, but they're, but they're not afraid as, as those who lived through Jim, the Jim Crow South, whose ancestors were slaves, who uh, were limited in what they could do and were forever afraid that someone would walk in, take everything they had, which happened often, and, and, and then led someone in the process. And there would be no, no um, uh, compensation uh, there would be nothing done to anyone who abused or misused or even killed someone in those days. So it's that kind of um, reality that those of us who were uh, who who are descendants of slaves had somehow or another our vision changed about who we are and what we could achieve. And uh, I often say, and it may not be true, that um, Obama uh, had a different mentality about becoming president. Uh, he believed he could because he had a grandmother who was white and a grandfather who was white. And he had a father from from Kenya. He had no relative who had actually been enslaved in this country. And therefore, his 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 optimism and his outlook for himself was totally different than than so many others who had thought about running for office, but realized the the fear and the apprehensions and and, and the vision of the limitation of visions that you uh, that you might have. So it it, it has an, a direct impact. And if we got if we have to talk about harm, we have to go to the first source of the harm. And there may be some residual impacts that are there. Also, other countries uh, in the Caribbean, many of them have reparations uh, activities, and they're in the process of doing it. And when I was at the UN, got a chance to hear from some of them. And none of them, none of them have included African-Americans in the United States who were, who were who had chattel slavery. None of them included us in their reparations. The reparations are strictly based in the Caribbean for those who live and, and, and were abused or misused in the Caribbean. Hmm. So the task force, you know, here at least has done its job, delivered this final report. What happens now? Well, the, the uh, Black Caucus, the California Legislative Black Caucus, who were co-sponsors of the bill with me, um, have taken up the task force as, their, as, as the work that they're going to do in the next few years. They are totally committed to the success of the reparations uh, movement. Uh, they are looking at ways and they're going to be working between now and the beginning of the next session which will be in January, uh, to begin to talk about what they can do uh, and what legislation will come forward and how they're restructuring. So they've, they've already begun to organize and to figure out how they were going to do this, how they're also going to keep the public engaged and informed. Uh, and so they're going to take the, up the, the charge that they should as legislators uh, of the Black Caucus to really take this bill and give it uh, legislation, give it funding, giving the things that it needs uh, and, and fight for it. And hopefully they they're also in a position to bring along their colleagues from the other caucuses uh, that uh, that exist in the legislature to to because they themselves have helped uh, the Chicano caucus, they've helped the Native American caucus, they've helped the LGBT caucus, the Women's caucus, they've helped all of those caucuses in very difficult times to pass legislation that advantaged them, that gave them uh, the kind of justice that they deserve, and we expect it, that we will have the same level of support from the other caucuses. Okay. Random question. Why do you think African-Americans were excluded from the conversation happening uh, with the UN in terms of reparations? 
Well, I don't think we were exclu- we weren't ex- we weren't excluded. I was asked to speak at the, the UN for reparations, so we weren't necessarily excluded. But I think part of the problem is that the United States has never felt it needed to give us reparations, and uh, and as a result, as we've gone around the world and shared reparations with everyone else, and it's a difficult to to understand why. I have my own concept of why I think it is. Uh, but when you look at the U.S. involvement in reparations, we have given reparations to almost everyone other than African-Americans. And it has to be a sense of feeling of guilt that they think that they did us a favor by bringing us here. Uh, that, that oftentimes people will say, look, if you had been in Africa, where would you be? I said, if you hadn't taken all of us from Africa, where would Africa be? Uh, that's the most important question. And um, and so as a result, there, there hasn't been this um, uh, this this real welcoming that that we deserve reparations. And I think much of it has to do with feelings of guilt. Uh, some people don't even want to admit or acknowledge, as we find now, that no one wants to even talk about having been enslaved because a new idea of being woke or being a uh, uh, critical race theory or whatever folks talk about uh, has a tendency to want to wipe the slate uh, clean and not have any traces of, uh, of, the, of the past, despite the fact, fact that the past was still impacting uh, in the streets, with our law enforcement, with our schools, we're still adversely impacted as a result of of, of the sect, the racism, and, and and people's perception of us as being dangerous, and so forth and so on. And while we see it every day, we have a tendency to try to pretend that it doesn't exist. You know, when people are being shot because they were driving somebody's driveway or knock on somebody's door, and and people say, "I was afraid." Afraid of what? I mean, you know, those kinds of things, creating this this image that that African-Americans were, uh, um, you know, barbaric, uh, were out of control, could not uh, do certain things. And therefore, it gives people the right to uh, not treat them fairly. So um, it is uh, it is going to be a journey in, in, in terms of people's mental state that, to come to recognition. That's why the apology is so important, that they did something wrong and they continue to do something wrong and that they have to recognize that if they're going to basically uh, improve what the, not only the life of African-Americans, but approve the life of Americans who live here to basically understand that these things happen and that we should never, ever go down that path again. I've been speaking with California Secretary of State, Dr. Shirley Weber. And Dr. Weber, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity. And I hope the public stays tuned because there'll be lots of conversations concerning reparations. And the document is on the, the Internet so anyone can read it and can respond to it and uh, hopefully become engaged. Thank you. What harms have you experienced from the legacy of chattel slavery? And what do you think reparations should look like? Give us a call, 619-452-0228. You can leave a message or you can email us at midday at kpbs.org. Coming up, the conversation continues with San Diego City Council President Pro Tem Monica Montgomery, who shares her experience on the task force. It really was emotional. I felt that it was one of the most impactful things that I would probably do in my entire career. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, 
healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Welcome back. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. We just heard from California's Secretary of State, Dr. Shirley Weber, about the journey of the state's reparations task force. Now we hear from one of the task force's members who helped to author its final 1,100-plus page report. Monica Montgomery Stepp is president pro tem of the San Diego City Council, representing San Diego's 4th District, as well as being a member of the California Reparations Task Force. Monica, welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to have you here. So at the June 29th meeting, the task force delivered its final 1,100-page report, How did it feel to submit that final report after all the work involved in its creation? You know, the report really was a labor of love. Um, We had spent two full years of powerful testimonies, um, folks telling their stories over generations and really bringing and shedding a light upon the trauma that had been inflicted on this particular community, which is the community of descendants of enslaved people. And so to go through all of that and to come out with an 1100 page report uh, to be able to deliver that to the California state legislature, it really was emotional. I felt that it was one of the most impactful things that I would probably do in my entire career, major sense of purpose. So I'm really honored to have been a part of this process and just to have been a witness of it and to be able to add my input into it. I know that there's a lot of work ahead, but it really, really was a heavy lift to get this report and these recommendations to the California state legislature. Mm. And and there is a lot in this report. We'll dig into uh, more of the details later in the interview, but can you briefly explain the big picture findings of this report? Yeah, well, the report is very, very important because there were two phases of the task force. One phase in the first year was really to make the case to you know, provide the public with the links between, you know, the slavery itself, you know, California's participation, and then those badges and incidents of slavery that we see, you know, reinventing themselves in the system that we have. And then, you know, the second year was to really dig into the interim recommendations and to throw those ideas, you know, forward to the task force members and to the public and also to the Department of Justice, who really helped us and really was the backbone of, of compiling all of the facts that have been included in the report. And so the report breaks down, the, you know, these harms that that the descendants on enslaved people have experienced into separate categories. And we, you know, kind of broke up into committees within the task force to concentrate on those various categories. Um, And also I would note that 
you know, another important part of this process is bringing the experts in for expert testimony. So we heard powerful testimonies, personal testimonies, and we also heard expert testimonies throughout this process. And so that is what the report uh, includes. And that is what, you know, will be taken to the state lawmakers uh, to prepare a full, you know, a full package that addresses reparations and the harms. To put this proposal together, um, you didn't just rely on um, experts or testimony. I mean, there was a lot that went into this. There was data as well, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So in every piece of this report, there is significant data attached. I, I will say that erasure is real. And in some instances, it was hard to find information and data that would back up every aspect of some of the, the personal testimony. For example, we had many members of our communities throughout the state come to us and tell you know us about their 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 family land that had been taken away either by an imminent domain process or by other means and being able to track some of those stories within you know our archives in the various municipalities proved to be very, very difficult. And that is part of the oppression, right, that we talk about. That's part of the process. Um, and that was a contributor in erasing people's stories, thereby erasing their sense of ownership. And so we had to overcome many of those types of obstacles to get to where we are. But, you know, with 1,100 pages of information, there's still a lot of information out there. It just, this is the first time that it's really in one place of this type of magnitude. Yes, we've had other previous studies. We've had the Kerner Report. We've had other studies. But this is the first of its kind that takes all of those different categories and does a really, really deep dive into the history and then also has quite a few recommendations that are placed in this report. Speaking of recommendations, I mean, the, the report puts forth more than 100 policy recommendations. Can you talk about a few of the ones you feel are most important to highlight? Yes, well, there are many, but I, I do wanna talk about our um, recommendation with regard to Prop, Proposition 209, because we have seen you know, the recent Supreme Court decision I also talk extensively about my own experience and my family's experience from uh, the passage of Proposition 209. And, you know, there are universal recommendations like that in the report. And there are also, you know, some more specific ones that have to do more with the community of descendants of enslaved people but with regard to Proposition 209, I talked about my family's experience. And that was one of the most impactful recommendations for me because, uh, you know, as we know, Prop 209 in 1996, it was passed and it prohibited state entities from using race, or ethnicity, or sex as a criteria for public employment. 
you know, for public contracting and public education. And we see the impacts of that in California to this very day. But it came at a time for my family when my parents had owned a very successful construction company where they were working hard every day to take care of their family. And they were also, you know, building generational wealth for my brothers and I. And so, you know, because of the, the passage of Code 209, I saw a very real and direct connection to the impact on my family. My parents um, dissolved their business, although they have started it back up as of now. And my brother is working hard at the business now. So that is a good thing. But at the time in 1996, they had to ultimately dissolve their business based on Prop 209. And that had other impacts uh, in our family. And so this report coming to fruition and that being one of the recommendations that we find ways to include you know, minor, minority businesses or businesses that are owned by people of color so that they can really begin again in California to build wealth for their families, or at least even just to, you know, um, make a good living here was is very, very important to me. And that um, certainly is one of the recommendations. We also know I've been very involved in speaking out um, against the fallacies of our criminal legal system. So this report also includes a breadth of recommendations around um, what we call in the report an unjust legal system. So, you know, it's, it's, it's very exciting. I really, really, really encourage people to go to the report and read it. You know, this is a topic that has not been discussed in the way that it should around reparations. Coming up, the conversation continues with how the African-American community responded here in California to the study of reparations for chattel slavery. It gave community a space to talk about these issues and to be heard on these issues and to be believed. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. You're listening to Midday Edition on KPBS. We're speaking with Monica Montgomery Stepp about the California Reparations Task Force final report. And Monica, um, assessing the cost and impacts of housing discrimination against Black Californians, uh, that was a major point of emphasis for the task force. Can you talk about that? I mean, how do you put a price tag on redlining and other racist policies that left Black Californians out of housing in the state? You know, the trauma aspect of this is very real, and it's really hard to quantify that. But we took the approach and the same approach that we have taken over the last two years to make sure that the recommendations that we 
put forward, including dealing with the wealth gap and the compensation piece that is one part of an entire reparations package, we did bring in economic experts from across the world to provide us with um, their recommendations and with formulas that would somehow encapsulate some of the harm. That process, you know, we met with the economic advisors, probably almost half of the meetings we had, they were there with us. And that's where also the data collection was so important for them to be able to do a full economic analysis over this wealth gap and to quantify uh, the health harms, the impact of redlining, the impact of loss of business, the impact of the criminal legal system, and to quantify those things economically. Certainly not an easy task. There's a lot of talk about the compensation piece, you know, rightfully so. It's something that we do have to grapple with. But, you know, it is taking us as a state, you know, hundreds of years to deal with this. As a nation, over 400 years, uh, it has taken for us to deal with this issue. And we have to, at some point, confront it, no matter what the outcome is, because we did bring in experts to sort of quantify these amounts and at least start the conversation. We know that the harms are there. We know that the harms are still, you know, um, impacting people generation after generation. We spoke about, you know, the impact of the physical body and the trauma that has been inflicted upon people and descendants of enslaved people. We have to, at some point, address that. It's been done, you know, in other places across the world. It's been done here, right here in the United States. And we have to include that as a part of this reparations conversation, although it is not the only piece that is a part of the reparations conversation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, you touched on compensation. Did you come up with a ballpark figure on what that would be or what it looks like in California? Yes, well, this is where the one of our recommendations is for a an office uh, that we call a Freedmen's Bureau of Affairs that would allow for those who are ultimately eligible to determine, you know, what that eligibility looks like and what reparations would look like for them. And what I mean by that is the way that the calculations have been made. There's not necessarily a set amount. And again, this comes from the task force. This is, you know, we do not know what the state legislature is going to do yet. And there's, you know, a lot of work ahead of us to make sure that this issue is addressed appropriately. But, you know, someone who has suffered health, health harms that is, you know, 70 years old may get an amount that is different from someone who has suffered health harms or a loss of a business that is 40 years old. So it doesn't, it's not one amount that is applied to each individual person. It really depends on the circumstances and the impact 
of, you know, whatever harm it is that a person may come to the table with. So it is complex. And that's why we wanted to set up this office to ensure that everyone that is eligible is has access to the information that they need and has folks to be able to guide them through whatever process will be set up um, when we talk about reparations. And the task force held 16 public meetings over the course of its work and heard from many experts, but also many Californians with the lived experience of systemic racism and uh, the ongoing impact of chattel slavery. What did you learn from those meetings and and personal testimonies? So much. Like I said, it was a labor of love because we were finally just kind of scratching the surface of hundreds of years of disparate treatment, unjust treatment, and the pain that is attached to that. But when we listen to the actual stories, there's really a lot of anecdotal evidence there to help us through this process. And we have to continue to lift up those stories because it is a part of the process And it does help to inform the larger public about how severe this issue really is and, you know, how we should all be dedicated to truth and justice that is surrounding this conversation about reparations. So, you know, like I said, this would be probably one of the most impactful things that I have done in my life because it gave people an opportunity and a space to truly be heard. So many times in our history, we have dismissed the stories of Black people and descendants of enslaved people. We have said people are making excuses. We have said people are lazy. We have not believed people when they tell us their stories. But in this instance, the task force, along with the 1100 page report, along with all of the recommendations, along with the formal passing of this report and proposals to the state legislature, it gave community a space to talk about these issues and to be heard on these issues and to be believed. And to turn that pain into this purpose has really been an honor of a lifetime. And I also personally was able to connect some of the dots in my own personal story that I may not have been able to do without this process. So I'm very appreciative of, you know, Dr. Shirley Weber, now our Secretary of State, that fought hard to even get this, you know, this bill passed. Um, the appointment that I received from Senate President Pro Tem Tony Atkins, the work of the task force members who were all extremely brilliant and brought everything they had to this space every time we met and all of the time in between. The chair, Camila Moore, uh, for standing strong in her conviction. This has just been an awesome, awesome process. And I'm just encouraged that many people will learn from it. 
ongoing health disparities between black and white people in the state um, was also tackled in this formal report or this final report, rather. What can you tell us about health outcomes and proposals to address it? We have quite a few recommendations around this issue. One is, you know, ways to address anti-Black discrimination in healthcare. You know, we're providing medical social workers and healthcare advocates to people who are experiencing that type of discrimination. We want to improve diversity among um, clinical trial participants even which is another level to this. We want to mandate standardized data collection. There's so many things within our system um, on a very granular level that we would need to do to address those health harms and, and health disparities that we see in our communities. You know, of course, we talked about um, the higher rates of injury and death among African-American mothers and infants and ways to uh, decrease that, that infant mort- uh, mortality rate. And so, you know, there, there's, there's a lot when it comes to the health harms that have been experienced by African-Americans in California. But now we have a place to go to look at recommendations, a breadth of recommendations all in one place. Absolutely. We did discuss that uh, in some of our expert testimony that came before us during the task force meetings. It is also reported extensively in the proposals and uh, you know that we are submitting to the state legislature. And, you know, some of that results in ongoing generational physical harm and, in addition, you know, mental harm and neglect. And so just being able to even teach our medical students about that type of generational trauma that particularly people who are descendants of enslaved people have within us daily as we you know go on with our lives is very very important it's addressed extensively by the task force uh and by this report and i'm really really looking forward to seeing what we can do at the state level to implement some of these recommendations I have been joined by San Diego City Council President Pro Tem Monica Montgomery Stepp about her work with the California Reparations Task Force. And Monica, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Jade. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com.